Uh, let me ask you to find uh, in your Bibles the Proverbs chapter 1. <clears throat> One of the, the greatest changes I have seen in my lifetime has been the access to information that we have. We have more information at our disposal now than we ever have before. In fact, uh, during the sermon this morning, you could um, shop for shoes, you can order your lunch, you can check any quotations I might use to see if I'm legit, or you could throw caution to the wind and just listen to the sermon, get some information that way. But it's there. In a matter of seconds, we can access information um, just almost anywhere. In fact, uh, coming this morning, I'll be honest, the reason I was late, sort of lost track of time. Uh, my senior management is away, so, uh, and then I, I realized it's going to be close if I take public, and then I ran out, I saw James and Natalie Bunch, I said, hey, can I ride with you guys? And then we ran into traffic because it's August and it's Prague, so every, literally every street in the city is torn up. There was all this information you could access, you know, how long it would take to get there. I totally ignored all of that and caught a tram and was still, I think you guys got here before I did. <laughs> so It's awesome. So just forget everything else I say the rest of the day. Don't trust me in the decision of the moment. But it is true that in the matter of, of seconds, we can access information from, from some of the brightest minds and actually many more of the dimmest minds of our day on virtually any subject. And in a lot of ways, that's improved our lives. It's made things a lot better. And yet it does seem that as we know more, um, we, what we tend to do is find more creative ways to use that knowledge for our, our own selfish benefit, for our own selfish interest. So the fact is, life and relationships really haven't changed. They're no less broken now than they were years ago. And why is this? It is because we need wisdom. We need a wisdom that is not our own so that we can navigate life and relationships and do it well. So to aid our pursuit of wisdom, we're beginning today a study, a series of messages from the book of Proverbs. Um, the first few verses that we'll use today serve as an introduction to the book give us an understanding of wisdom and also of the journey that we're about to take. So let's read Proverbs chapter 1, the first seven verses. <clears throat> the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for gaining wisdom and instruction, for understanding words of insight, for receiving instruction in prudent behavior, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to those who are simple, knowledge and discretion to the young, let the wise listen and add to their learning, and let the discerning get guidance for understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So we'll come back to verse 1 in, in a few minutes, but let's notice in, in uh, verses 2 and 3 the purpose of Proverbs. Uh, this is one of several ways that God uses to make us wise, to impart his wisdom to us. So in, in verse 2, we're told that we have Proverbs so that we might receive wisdom and instruction and understand words of insight. So the focus here is on content. There are things we need to know. Okay? There's, there's cool stuff to know that we're only going to find out if the Lord shows us in his word. Okay? Then in verse 3, it says that, that we have Proverbs so that we might receive instruction in how to live. And the emphasis here is on the consequences of, of what we learn. So to have prudent behavior, and prudent means wisely cautious, so not paralyzed by fear, but just wisely cautious, like the English proverb, look before you leap, right? That's just wise caution. So the idea is 
as it says there, doing what is right and just and fair. It is knowing what to do in different situations. Um, these are all synonyms, and it just talks about doing the right thing. Then in verses 4 and 5, we see that the target of Proverbs, there are three kinds of people that are addressed in the Proverbs. There are those who lack wisdom. So we see those in verse 4. The simple gain wisdom and prudence. The young gain knowledge and discretion. Okay, these are people who simply do not yet have wisdom. Okay? They, in most cases, know they don't have wisdom, and they're teachable. And then there are those who have some wisdom, but desire more. So we see them in, in verse 5. They're called the wise and discerning. And they are given Proverbs. Their, their Proverbs are addressed to those that they might become even more so, because one mark of wisdom is the recognition that you need more, that you never quite have arrived. And then in verse 7, there's a third group, and those are the fools who despise wisdom and, and discipline and instruction. That is, they are those who reject discipline. So you have... The young who, who haven't learned, you have those who have learned and yet desire more, and you have the fools, and all three, and they're called by different names throughout the book. We'll encounter them many times over, God willing. So the, really, the, the point in all this is if you are willing to admit you need wisdom, the Lord delights in giving it to you. He will give you what you need, and he seems to love doing that. Um, evidently, I ignored that little voice that said, Check the navigation to see how you'd get here more quickly <laughs> this morning. Well, that's okay. I'm learning. So let's see then how Proverbs works, because Proverbs is really not like any other part of Scripture. It's, it's a different genre. It's just a different kind of writing, and it's very easy, oddly enough, to misinterpret these. So we need to have some care and understanding about how we approach them. Uh, we see in verse 6 that uh, it tells us something about the nature of Proverbs. It mentions Proverbs and parables, sayings and riddles. This indicates the kinds of things you find as you read through Proverbs. It also indicates how Proverbs leads us to wisdom. And it's not by uh, laying down laws, although it does tell us indirectly what we ought or ought not to do. It's not by giving prophecies, though Proverbs do um, point us to what we ought or ought not to do. And it's not by making promises, though you do find in Proverbs uh, some predicted outcomes, some guaranteed outcomes. Proverbs does point us to wisdom primarily by means of observations that most commonly emphasize the, the consequences of our choices, of our words, of our actions, and our character. So those are observations. They're not, they're not promises. Um, Proverbs have a universal appeal, but they don't apply in every situation. And that's part of wisdom, knowing when and how some particular proverb applies to a situation. We understand this with our own proverbs, right? For example, you're familiar with this one, he who hesitates is lost. Okay, we understand that. That, that discourages self-doubt, it encourages uh, uh, swift decision, resolute action, which is appropriate at times, but you wouldn't say that to a child about to cross a busy street, right? Just get on out there. <laughs> That's not what you do, right? Okay, it doesn't fit. So it takes some wisdom to understand when you use which proverb. So they're all true, but they are, and they are, have a universal appeal, but they are also highly contextual. They, they tend to fit more specific situations. And so we have to exercise great care because if we misinterpret it, we're going to be expecting things from the Lord that he actually hasn't promised us. But we also see this with the biblical proverbs, like in chapter 26, Verses 4 and 5, two verses right next to each other that seem to contradict each other. 
Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you yourself will be just like him. And then, verse 5, answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. So which is it? Well, sometimes you answer a fool, sometimes you don't answer a fool. Reality is you're probably going to regret whatever you do with a fool, because fools are just <laughs> difficult to deal with. And that's, that's, I remember puzzling over this, and I think that's the answer. Is, you know what? There's just, a fool just puts you in a no-win situation uh, sometimes, and it makes life fun, right? So let's look at a bit about the book of Proverbs itself. The first nine chapters are basically longer discourses, but those set the stage for the rest of the book that are what look like random, random sayings about different subjects. But we have to set the stage with the first nine chapters and, and lay a foundation there. In the first nine chapters, it's, the idea is it's like we're eavesdropping on a conversation a father is having with his son as, as they are walking. And he is explaining life to him and preparing him for life. And as they walk, they encounter different people, and the father points these out to him. In particular, we encounter two women that are named Wisdom and Folly, and we'll meet them several times, so we'll um, say more about that another time. Um, now, sometimes uh, people read Proverbs and they see all the father son exhortations, and they see all the emphasis on that, and, and uh, especially they say, well, why is there not more about daughters? Do daughters not matter? Is this just a man thing? Is this just misogyny on the part of God? And, and it's not, okay? Uh, a couple of things I have learned as, I've, as I looked into this, I'll pass on to you. First, this is actually more of a rhetorical device in which the father is preparing his son for life. It's not a statement that men are more important or if, if chapters 1 to 9 is only for the men. Honestly, if anything, it's because men need more help, right? I mean, God created Adam... We see that in Genesis 1 and 2. And then he created Eve as a, you remember what it says, as a suitable helper. Okay, who needs help in that scene? Adam needs help. Eve didn't need help. Adam needed help. So we need more help. There's been a few times, um, at least in one marriage with which I am very familiar, <laughs> in which uh, the wife says, do you need me to spell this out for you? And to which I usually respond, yeah, that would actually be really helpful. Because <laughs> I really don't know what's going on here. So think of it like Lord of the Rings, okay? The point of Lord of the Rings is not that Frodo Baggins is a male hobbit, okay? The point is, he is on a serious, dangerous, treacherous journey, and there are all kinds of people that intersect with him along the way. Some are there to help, and some are there to hinder, some are there to harm, and he doesn't know. He doesn't know who to trust, now, we know a little more as the readers and viewers of the story. And it's the same thing here where we're watching a father exhort his son who doesn't know. And we know a little more because we have a, a bigger picture. The father has an even larger picture. So he's exploring son. So this is really not a, a, a gender thing, okay? Our, our generation, our current cultural climate makes it that. But let me urge you to put those, those concerns aside and enjoy the show, so to speak. Um, also, the Proverbs are meant to be read or heard and applied, even though they have specific situations, applied broadly. What I, what I mean is, especially on this issue, uh, for example, if you've read Proverbs before, you know that uh, oftentimes you'll find the father encouraging the son to beware of promiscuous women. So a man reading a passage like that says, right, I get it, don't be that guy. Okay, good. 
Don't be that guy. Stay away from women like that. Good. Got it. But a man should also read that and say, well, but how can I be the man God wants me to be so that we flip the script a bit so that I don't, I don't be the one that ruins the life of a good woman. Now, you know people like that, right? We know good women who've been ruined by, good men, by terrible men. That's a legitimate application of that. And a woman reading this, she can read this and say, yeah, don't be that woman, but also, how can I be the woman God wants me to be? So there's, there's, it's okay to apply Proverbs in that way they're meant to be turned over in the mind and applied like that. So, let's look at verse 7 and learn how we gain a heart of wisdom. It says in verse 7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And then chapter 3 and verse 7 says, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. So it's clear you don't get wisdom from the Lord without the fear of the Lord. But what is the fear of the Lord? Let's understand first what it isn't. Most fear is fear of harm. So you fear burning your hands, so you avoid, and, and fear of harm leads us to avoid something or someone, right? So you fear burning your hands, so you avoid touching a hot stove. You may fear rejection, so you avoid relationships. You may fear responsibility and avoid making decisions. And fear can often lead to resentment and hatred toward, toward the person or the thing we're afraid of. But fear of the Lord is different. It is radically different. It's not a fear that pushes us away. It's not a fear that causes us to avoid him. It is a fear that draws us to him. Look at what uh, Moses says to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 10. He says, Now Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. Now, it was common in, in religion of the, sounding, of the surrounding nations for people to fear their gods. But the concept of, of loving God, that, that was totally foreign to any people. No God asked his people to love him. And it's synonymous with the fear of the Lord. It is a, it is a humble reverence. Think respect on steroids. Okay? It is a reverence for God who is holy and a sense of accountability. It's the recognition that I must give account to God for my life, for my words and my decisions. And that, that tempers, it affects the choices I make and the words I say. Uh, reminds me of a friend who's really, uh, honestly, just really, really talkative. And we were getting coffee one day. He said, you know, the Lord says we have to give account for every idle word. He said, man, I'm going to have a lot to answer for. <laughs> just, I just... Stay quiet. So, <laughs> J.I. Packer, though. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Here's, here's, here's where it starts. And here's where it starts for us every day from today and the rest of your life. Gaining wisdom begins not with information, but with an attitude of the heart, with a humble and teachable spirit. Whether you are wise or foolish has less to do with what you know and more to do with the attitude of your heart. Again, it is humility, it is teachability before the Lord. J.I. Packer said it well, not till we have become humble and teachable, standing in awe of God's holiness and sovereignty, acknowledging our own littleness, distrusting our own thoughts, 
and willing to have our minds turned upside down, can divine wisdom become ours. And you know, if you're honest, if you look in the mirror often enough, you know none of us is ever completely there. So this is not a matter of I am either there or I am not. This is one of degree, but it is, and it is an attitude of the heart. It is being humble and teachable. Then these verses that we've read about the fear of the Lord challenges to fear the Lord, and it challenges to abandon our own reasoning, to not put hope in what we alone, by our own reasoning, conclude. But it is a battle. So why is it a battle? Well, it's two kinds of battle. There's an external battle because the wisdom of this age is all around us. It is in every reclama, every, every commercial, every advertisement, everything, almost everything we see and, and hear comes to us with the wisdom of this age, and it is radically different and opposed and antithetical to the gospel and to the wisdom of God. But there is an internal battle to fear the Lord instead of trusting our own wisdom. We, we naturally lean toward our own wisdom, and yet Scripture says, no, you've got to put your hope not in what you think, but in, in the Word of God and in the wisdom of God. You've got to fear the Lord. Why is this? Why do we have such a battle? Well, we need to go back to the beginning to understand this. We, if you go back to Genesis, in the first three chapters, you know that God created a beautiful world. He put Adam and Eve there in the garden, surrounded in paradise, and He gave them one restriction. He said, you cannot eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the serpent came, tempted and deceived Eve to eating the fruit. She gave some to Adam. He ate, bringing sin and death into the world. Well, there's a little detail of the story that maybe you didn't notice before, that I didn't notice for a long time. Let's look at Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6. It says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. So did you notice that? She saw this fruit was desirable for gaining wisdom. Who knew <laughs> that, that wisdom was a thing? That there was wisdom around before Solomon showed up? I think this suggests to us a couple of things. One, we are created by God with a desire for wisdom. We'll see this several times in the Proverbs, a connection between wisdom and creation. But also, Eve had not sinned at this point. She desired wisdom as a person who had been created in the image of God. And God is wise. We're created in His image. We have the capacity for wisdom and a capacity to delight in wisdom. So it's a good thing. But we need to notice what happened with Adam and Eve's choice, that when they disobeyed God, they weren't simply trying to recognize the difference between good and evil. That's, they already had that, because that's a part of what it simply means to be a moral creature of understanding the difference between good and evil. What they were trying to do was take the, the right to determine for themselves what is good and evil. It was in the story, you know, God created something, and he says it was good. He saw it, it was good. He saw it, it was good. And then here come Adam and Eve, and, set, and they make this choice and say, actually, we're going to decide for ourselves what is good. And that began the great rebellion, right? This is why we're not naturally wise. This is why we face that choice between our own wisdom and God's wisdom, and why our greatest hindrance to wisdom is in our own hearts. And I think it gives whole new meaning to Jesus' words when he says, if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. He's not saying, you know, rob fewer banks, right? He's saying, you have to basically reverse the choice that Eve made. You are no longer deciding for yourself what is good. You are turning away from your own wisdom, and you are putting your hope in my wisdom. 
So, you know, self-denial is, is not about doing less vices. It's, it's renouncing ourselves for Christ. So, these two verses also about the fear of the Lord and also help us understand a crucial characteristic of a wise person. They keep perspective. Okay? They think beyond the moment. They're not caught up in the moment. They think about consequences. Or as my good friend Mick would say, if it's stupid, don't do it. Okay? You can write that one down <laughs> if you need to. But wise people think, is this stupid? That's what I should have thought before I got out of James's car. Is this stupid? If it is, don't do it. Wrong decision this morning, but thankfully, God's grace prevails. And that really is the point of verses 8 to 19 of this first father-son discourse. Because after the father encourages his son to embrace wisdom, he describes a situation in which the son may find himself. So he, he talks about wisdom and encouraging him to embrace his teaching in 8 and 9. And then in verse 10, there is this there's this situation. He says, my son, if sinful men entice you, don't give in to them. Okay, so here's a warning. Here's the, here's the stage is set. In verses 11 and 12, these evil men, he's, in this scenario, they are offering power over people. They say, come along with us. Let's lie in wait for innocent blood. Let's ambush some harmless soul. Let's swallow them alive like the grave and whole like those who go down to the pit. So here they are offering Power, well, that's attractive and that's appealing, right? I mean, you can have power over people, over their lives. In verse 13, they offer wealth. They offer easy money. Verse 13, we'll get all sorts of valuable things and fill our houses with plunder. And then in verse 14, they offer community, comradeship. They, he will belong to the cool and the powerful people. And that's especially attractive for, for those who lack wisdom, right? They say in verse 14, cast lots with us, that is, join, join in with us, and we will all share the loot. But then notice how the father encourages his son. He says, now, if, in effect, I'm paraphrasing, if you're wise, you'll think beyond this moment when the plan is proposed, and through the fear of the Lord, you will see things as they really are. So in verse 15, he says, My son, don't go along with them. Don't set foot on their paths. Their feet rush into evil. See, this, is, this may offer you wealth and power and community, but it's evil. It's wrong. And he says, They're swift to shed blood. He says, How useless to spread a net where every bird can see it. I'm going to suggest an alternate translation for verse 17. That uh, it's better translated in the eyes of a bird, the net is spread and covered with grain for no reason. That is, a bird doesn't recognize a trap. Now, they might be scared away by motion if they see you doing it, but a bird sees a trap, they're not going to recognize it. What they see is food. They say, ah, easy food, look at this. Nothing to hunt for, it is right here in front of me, not knowing that by eating the food, they will pay for it with their lives. And the father is saying, these evil men are just like the bird. They see easy money. They're proposing wealth and power and, and uh, community. But in fact, what they are doing is ambushing themselves. Um, and I, I said, I quoted a guy named Dwayne Garrett, who's a um, phenomenal Hebrew scholar, uh, author of several books. His real claim to fame is that he was my Hebrew prof. So awesome. Um, just had to point that out. Um, so in verse 18, he says, 
by trying to ambush others, in fact, they are ambushing, they are, they are destroying themselves. And the lesson, you know, it's not wrong to want wealth. It's not wrong to gain wealth. It's not wrong to work and make money and have it and enjoy it. But wealth gained through wickedness will destroy you. It will. It, it will consume you. So, he says in verse 19, such are, all the paths, such are the paths of all who go after ill-gotten gain. Notice he doesn't say, this is not all money, this is not, it's not wrong to do that. But he says, going after ill-gotten gain, it takes away the life of those who get it. So a crucial part of wisdom is allowing the fear of the Lord to keep your perspective larger so that you are not enticed in the moment. Now, Seeing all this, now we need to go back to verse 1 and kind of get the backstory because Solomon has this, this tragic history with wisdom. Solomon, as you know, was the son of David the king. As David neared death, he appointed Solomon as, as his successor. When Solomon was crowned king, the Lord came to him in a dream and said, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. And Solomon said, Give me wisdom. And the Lord was very pleased that Solomon had asked for wisdom and, and not for a lot of other things that a normal king might ask for. And he said, I will give you wisdom. I'll give you the kind of wisdom that, that nobody's ever seen. And, he, and I'll give you a bunch of other things too, right? And he did that. And if you read in the story, it's in 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles, you'll see that, that Solomon displayed wisdom almost immediately in a, just an, an astounding amount of wisdom in different situations. He knew how to respond in ways that people just had not, not thought of before. He was so wise that people came from around the nations just to hear him, just to hear his wisdom, just, just to learn from him. But unfortunately, he didn't end very well, right, if you know the story. And most crucially, he did not follow the clear teaching of Scripture. He did not trust God's wisdom, and it's, it's tragic. So hundreds of years earlier, the Lord had anticipated that Israel would have a king. And so he said, when that time comes, here are the rules for your king. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 17. He said, the king, aside from, of course, being an Israelite, the king must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. But when we look in 1 Kings chapter 10, what we find is that Solomon had 12,000 horses that he imported from, not Colorado, <laughs> Egypt. Why is that important? I believe it's important because of what was said in Deuteronomy. Then it says in Deuteronomy 17, the king must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. So the, the weight of the gold that Solomon received every year, I think it was over 600 talents, it comes out to 23,000 kilograms of gold every year. Now, would that be a cut in pay for any of you? <laughs> you know, you just sit there and wonder, what would that be like? But... Remember, that's what the Lord said he should not do. Now, you know, we, we heard the father encourage his son. It's like ill-gotten gains don't profit, okay? And Solomon, it's not like, it's not like he, 
he got this wealth in a devious way or without integrity, but because there was so much of it, it, it seemed to, to shift his hope away from the Lord. And then the, the clincher, which I say for last, it says in Deuteronomy 17, the king must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. Isn't that interesting that the Lord would say that hundreds of years before Solomon? The Lord knew, right? And what we find in 1 Kings 11, it says King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. I think he was in some serious denial, personally. <laughs> anyway, he had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. That is tragic. It is tragic. But here is clear disobedience, rejection of God's wisdom for his own. There's a fourth thing in Deuteronomy 17. The Lord said that the king must write his own copy of the law and read it every day. It's the first, first quiet time in Scripture, right? So he must write his own copy of the law. There's no kinkos, no, you know, no copy centrum. You just uh, write this by hand. So that, which of course aids the learning. And he must read it every day so that he will learn to fear the Lord and follow the word of God carefully. Now, this is a bit of an argument from silence, but with the others mentioned, I just have to wonder. There's nothing in Scripture that tells me that Solomon ever did this. And it makes me wonder, did he ever sit down, write out the word of God for himself, and spend time reading the word every day that he might govern well? We don't know. I mean, Proverbs is saturated with biblical truth. Maybe God just gave it to him. I, we're just left to wonder about that. So there is a proverb, chapter 21, that tells us that it is wise to learn from what happens to someone else. So let's try to learn from what happened to Solomon. I think there are at least three lessons we can draw. One is that wisdom comes from God, and he loves giving wisdom. I mean, God was pleased. God was very pleased when Solomon asked for wisdom. James 1.5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask of God who gives to all generously and without finding fault, and it will be given to you. If you need wisdom, ask God for wisdom. Ask him. We all face decisions, and we're all in circumstances beyond our control. We all need wisdom day by day. Ask God for wisdom. Frankly, I'll, I'll do that, try to do that each day. Just, God, give me wisdom I used to pray that over my kids when they were home. God, make them, make them wise. Make them wise. I prayed some other stuff too, but I prayed wisdom for sure. Um, it's just critical. It's, you just can't overstate the importance of it. So if you need wisdom, ask and trust that he'll give you the wisdom that you need. Sometimes he does it over time. A lot of different ways to come, and we'll get to see these as, as we go through the book. A second lesson from Solomon is that wisdom can be rejected even by somebody who's really wise. And that's just sobering and, and uh, just 
Hard to think about, right? Because like Solomon, you can be really wise for a long time and then make a really foolish choice. Our ability to rationalize sinful behavior is astounding. <laughs> we can talk ourselves into almost anything. We can rationalize almost anything. Sometimes it's a moment of weakness, like Moses losing his temper, like David taking Bathsheba. Solomon, it looks like he had deeper issues, right? This was not a moment of weakness for him, but a, but a mindset. He was on a path that, that, that ended up destroying him, destroying his kingdom, because he rejected God's wisdom. A uh, third lesson from that is obedience to the rest of Scripture is a means, is, is crucial for wisdom. That is, Solomon failed to obey the clear teaching of Scripture, and it led him to act foolishly, and that led eventually to the breakup of his kingdom. So Proverbs helps us gain wisdom, but we need the other Scriptures too. See, I said Proverbs aren't laws, but we need, we need the laws. Proverbs aren't promises, but we need the promises. Proverbs aren't prophecies, but we need the prophecy. We need all of those things. We need every part of Scripture. As Paul told Timothy, all Scripture is inspired by God. He said to Timothy right above that in 2 Timothy 3, that the Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation. So we need, we're going to get wisdom, not just from the Proverbs, but from all of Scripture. And they feed each other because obeying the Scripture makes us wise. Being wise helps us value the rest of Scripture. It's a Beautiful cycle. Well, one day, centuries after Solomon, Jesus was on earth, and he said to a crowd of people, something greater than Solomon is here. And I read that, and I can't help but wonder if they laughed out loud. I was like, well, where are those 23,000 kilograms of gold you got last year? Like, oh, no gold. Oh, where's your palace? Mm, nope. Where are those 12,000 horses and chariots? Nope, don't have a horse or a chariot. Well, you know, where's your fine robes, your throne? Like, nope, don't see any of that here. But Jesus is greater than Solomon. Because Solomon had his failures, but Jesus is a king. He's the ultimate, true and wise and worthy king, who did not fail. As Isaiah 11 says, hundreds of years before Jesus, it says this, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. That, that's our king, right? Who comes and lives and delighted in the fear of the Lord, and still does, delights in the fear of the Lord. Because as Solomon failed, we all fail. And we need a, we need a king who is true and wise and good, and Jesus, Jesus is that king. He is, as, as we've talked about, the father-son conversation in Proverbs. Jesus is the son who doesn't fail his father. Father talks to the son. We don't know. I mean, this is, you know, this is a, a literary device here. But it's easy, to, it's easy to picture. And rare is the son who doesn't fail his father at some point. The child who doesn't fail their parents. Jesus did not fail. Not in any way. He's wonderful and beautiful and worthy. Bears the scars of what it took to bring us into relationship with God. And he came in John 17 as he prayed. 
Before he was arrested, he said, Father, I've, I've accomplished everything you gave me to do. So he's the king who didn't fail. He's the, the kingdom. He's the son who didn't fail his father. He's, he is the true wisdom. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, that Christ is our wisdom. He's our righteousness. He's our holiness and our redemption. He died and rose again to, to bring us forgiveness and freedom and life. To give us not just wisdom, but life now and forever. So do you want to be wise? Do you want life? Go to Jesus. Abandon your own wisdom. Put your hope in him. Because as he did not fail his father, he will not fail you. He's, he's worthy and wise and good. You can trust him. Father, thank you for these moments together. We confess our need for wisdom our need for you. We confess we don't have what it takes. We lack wisdom so easily or ensnared in the wisdom of this age. And we listen to our own hearts instead of speaking your wisdom to our hearts. How we need you. We, we are desperate. We are more desperate than we realize. But we thank you that Jesus is indeed a, a king who delights in the fear of the Lord. A king who's never failed, who's defeated death itself and offers us forgiveness and freedom today. We thank you. Desire to be found in him. Grant us wisdom. Father, I know that there are many in this room, listening online, who are facing circumstances and situations, and they feel uh, hopeless, and they may feel uh, really confused and bewildered by what is going on and not knowing where to turn and what decisions to make. And I pray especially for those of us in that situation that you would grant wisdom, that you would grant discernment, that you would grant the fear of the Lord that allows us to not be caught up in the moment, but keeps the perspective that keeps focused on you, that trusts you, that trusts your word. But I pray in those cases for specific direction, for wisdom, because from your word, it looks like you love to give wisdom. You want us to be wise. We want to honor you with that. So I pray you'd, you'd grant that, please, in Jesus' name. Amen.